You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Man, you love us, Lord. With all the sacrifices you've made and with everything that you've done, you scream out that you love us. But God, we just pray, God, that something that our service to you, God, would be a reflection of that love. God, we know we can never reciprocate it, Lord. But yet, God, we still give you our lives in the hope that you would know that we, that we love you just as you first loved us. And so, God, I pray, God, that as, as we come to this time where we explore the word, God, that we would be reminded of your goodness. And God, as it talks about how your grace is amazing in God and how you were put on the cross, God, that we will talk about that, God, and that we will celebrate that, God, but we won't take it lightly. We will take it as the defining moments of our faith, the importance, God, the things that make us who we are. And God, I pray, God, that as we continue to worship you, God, even as we listen to the message, that you will be glorified, that we will be edified, and ultimately, you will get the glory from everything that's done. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, praise team. Thank you for your, for your obedience and your service to us, church. All right. For those of you who have your Bibles, if you would, turn to the book of Psalms. Um, I know we've been in Genesis. I know that Brother Jeff has been, we've been doing Genesis for quite some time. But we're going to take another detour just for now. Um, please pray for Brother Jeff as he is away. Um, we're thankful. We're thankful for um, all the good things that God is doing in our lives, and we're thankful for the Word of God and how it instructs us in our daily living. Um, once again, that's Psalm chapter 16, and we're going to do the entire psalm. Don't worry; it's only 11 verses. <laughs> if I had to say Psalm 119, you'd all be in trouble right now. All right. And just in case you don't know, Psalm 117 has over 100 verses. So just in case you didn't know that. All right. All right, once again, one seven, I mean, not 117, um, Psalm chapter 16. All right. If you're there, say amen. amen. All right, let's read it. We're going to read the entire thing. It says this. Um, first of all, it's Psalm 16. Some may have a subtitle that says, and it may say, a, a mictum of David. I'll explain what that is in a moment. Um, verse 1 Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge. In you, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied and I shall pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. 
you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray one more time and then we're going to get into this message. Um, Once again, God, we come before you, God, humbly asking you, God, to just open our minds and hearts to the words of the scriptures. God, help me to Help me, God, to make sure that I'm practical in, in my teaching, God, and help me to make sure, God, that I'm saying what you want me to say. Use me as a mouthpiece, God, for your glory. And God, I pray that through this message, God, someone may come to know you and know you more intimately. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. By show of hands, how many of you right now are happy at this very moment, right now? Happy. All right, hands down. All right. Now, second show of hands for those who have joy right now, who have joy. All right? Raise your hand if you think happiness and joy are both the same. Hmm. You sure? Okay. All right. Good. Good test. All right. Let's talk about this, guys. Let's talk about happiness and joy. And just so you know, the title of today's message is Devotion That Leads to Joy. Devotion That Leads to Joy. Um, when we talk about happiness, we always, some, and, and when you talk about happiness to a lot of people, a lot of times we get confused happiness with the idea of what joy is. Now, when we think of happiness, we think of our current state of being, our emotions at that moment, keeping in mind that happiness is usually tied to something that happens in the now. It's conditional to some degree. Whereas in joy is something that we can have even when we're not happy in the moment. Is everybody following me? For instance, let me just to make sure you understand and trekking with me. Um, in the Bible, they make there's a lot of references to joy. And when you think of joy, you don't think of persecution. When you think of joy, you don't think of being hurt. But then in the Bible, if, if, if specifically in, in James chapter one, it tells us to count it all joy when we go through various trials. Is everybody following me? So this means that it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be excited about going through something to have joy. Joy is an over, is an all-surpassing peace. Joy is this all-surpassing security that you have as a believer. And you need to understand that if you are a Christian, above all else, you should have joy. Now the question becomes, what do you have joy in? Do you have joy in your status? that you have a good job? Do you have joy in the fact that you look good? Do you have joy in the fact that you may be one of the smartest guys you know? Or do you have joy that is rooted deeply within God and his holy word? And of course, that sounds like a simple question. However, if we begin to explore what what makes us happy and what makes us joyous, we may dig and find out that we may have some other things that determine how our joy is. And ultimately, yes, we need to be understood. We need to be rooted in the idea that God should be the source of our joy. But we have to figure out sometimes that maybe some of the reasons why we're down or we're not happy may not be tied to the joy in the Lord. It may be tied to your joy in other things. And so with this, I wanted to explore Psalm chapter 16. Now, as you think of Psalm chapter 16, as you read it, you see there's a lot of you see, psalms were basically, um, in a lot of cases, music, music, kind of music. Some of it was poetry, and it was all based on a few different ideas. One of those ideas being how we respond to God. 
And so in this particular psalm, we see that David, who is the psalmist, it says in the very beginning, as in some of you guys' Bibles, it may be a small header. It says, a mictum of David. Does anybody have a clue what a mictum is? That's okay. That's a good thing. The Hebrews didn't even translate what the word mictum means, okay? In fact, some people believe that that word actually translates into the idea of golden, meaning that this this, piece, this passage, Psalm 16, is a very special psalm in such a way, and it is, and once we get through it, you will see why it's so special. But then also some people translate mictum to mean mystery, meaning that this has some secret meaning that surpasses some of our understanding. But now we've already read through it, and so we kind of have an idea of what Psalm 16 says, but I have to give you one piece of context as we walk through the, sto- as we walk through the psalm. When you read the psalm, if you go back and read it on your own, you'll notice that it looks like David is simply listing things that is going on in his life and he's responding to God. But in reality, Psalm 16 actually has a different reality. It has a bit of a prophetic measure to it as God is, I mean, as David is basically prophetically telling us about the Lord Jesus Christ before his resurrection. In fact, we'll explore that in a moment, but I definitely, but I want to get you guys to thinking about where does your devotion lie? And we hear about this idea that as Christians, we need to be devoted. And when we, and if we thought about a simple way to talk about devotion, it would simply mean trusting in the Lord. How do we trust in the Lord? And so I believe that Psalm 16 gives us a lot of pointers, a lot of characteristics, a lot of elements that show us how to live the life that's devoted to God. And so with that being said, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. Um, as we move into this psalm, in fact, let's go ahead and start at verse 1. I don't want to belabor too much here. Um, we're going to start, first of all, and once again, this idea in the psalm is going to be our observations of elements of devotion. We want to know how can we be fully devoted to God or what are some elements of devotion to God? Um, the first thing we read is as we, as we read um, verses one and two, again, it says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. One of the first things we see as we talk about devotion to the Lord, and keep in mind that we're going to start going back and forth paralleling between what David is saying to God and his response to God in worship, and we're going to walk through what it means for Jesus as well. Um, the first thing we look at in this element of devotion is dependence on the Lord. Dependence on the Lord. First of all, verse one says, once again, the Lord watches over us. He, we hide in him. It says that we take refuge in him as we live, serve, share God's word in a hostile world. We must remember that we are giving God's standard and, the, and way to a dying world. And when, when people oppose you, they are opposing God. Even if you are in a situation where you are uncomfortable, maybe even afraid, you can stand on God's promises speak God's word, and then hide behind him because he is our refuge. I know there are a lot of times we hear this, we live in this world where we are taught to be brave and courageous, and we should be, but we, almost be, we also must be vulnerable. We need, to be, we need to be vulnerable enough to admit that we're not comfortable. And when we do, we're making a bold statement to the world that considers weakness, saying, I'm not perfect and I can't help myself. In other words, we need to hide behind God 
trusting him to protect us, depend on him. We don't depend on our own strength. In verse two, it tells us, it says, and the Lord, and it says, and the Lord, I mean, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. All the good things that happen to us, all the things that we experience, all the things that we do are, are um, an effect of our experience with God. We have no prosperity without God. He gives us peace and stability. It's because of God that we're able to be stable. It's because of God that we have any sort of protection or anything that we can even lean on and trust in. It's only because of God that we have it. And, And so what I ask you just from these two verses alone, who do you depend on? Do you depend on the Lord or do you depend on yourself? A lot of times we get caught up in the idea that we're good at things. We're talented in different ways. We have all these things that we can do. And when sometimes when the chips are down, we really rely on what we do best. But sometimes God is taking away all the crutches in our lives so that we can depend on him. He wants to be your refuge. You and yourself cannot be your refuge. If you can be your refuge, you are God. And since there are no other gods, you can't be your own refuge. So you need to depend on the Lord. Yes, God will give you the confidence to do great things if you trust in him. Let your faith be trusted in him. Let's keep reading in verse three. It says, as the saints who are in the earth, they are majestic ones in whom, I mean, in whom is all my delight. As we look at verse three, we must also, we, we look at this idea that another element after dependence on the Lord We need to be in fellowship with the saints. We need to be in fellowship with the saints. As we read verse three, we get this idea that we must also delight in the people that God loves, which means this. You must have a concern for the saints of God. You cannot live in a bubble. You must have concern for other people of God. Let me give you an example. Paul, when you read the book of, when you read the um, the books in Corinthians, Paul talks about all these things that happened to him from shipwrecking to all these ailments to everything in the world happening to him. But yet, even in the midst of all these things happening to him, he says that he was concerned about the church daily. Did everybody catch that? He was concerned about the church even in the midst of his affliction. Because think about it. When we get caught up in our when we get caught up in our own world, what do we do? We shut the door, don't we? We don't care about anybody else. We don't we're not worried about you. it's, It's not a big deal. Right. But then God tells us, listen, we need to be concerned about the saints. Another example, Jesus himself, he was going to the cross innocently for all of our sins. He was getting beat, mocked, and about to be killed. But but, but guess what? When he was on the cross, he was concerned about the salvation of a thief. He didn't say, shh, I'm dying over here. I'm trying to complete the work of the Lord, all right? No, he was concerned about every person. And we should be too. We must not neglect fellowship with the saints because Jesus did not neglect us as when he, when he went to die on our behalf. I want to give you some other little general, general observations about concerning fellowship. I want you to understand number one of this, and this may seem off topic, but I can go back and explain it if need be. The church is God's chosen vehicle to share the word, I mean, to share his word and his ways. Don't neglect it. In Hebrews chapter 10, it talks about this idea that we shouldn't forsake the assembly, right? Like some other people have done. And because they forsake the assembly, things happen. And it's not because it's a curse. It's because they're not building and being edified with the saints of God. 
Church is not just a place where we come to hear the word. It's also a place where we come to fellowship. We come to encourage one another. You should not be a Lone Ranger Christian. Let me say that again. You shouldn't be a Lone Ranger. And not only that, sanctification is obtained by interacting with other saints, not by being by yourself. You cannot grow as a believer if you're not interacting with other believers. You don't believe me? Let me tell you why. Listen, we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different belief systems. Some of them are not of God, right? Some of them are not of God. But yet, listen, there are things that even in the household of God we disagree on. But guess what? Those disagreements, they can make you better. They help you understand other people, right? Because everybody's not this homogenous, oh, we all are, we're all the same, we're all, we're all doing the same thing. And we do have commonplaces, right? Salvation, commonplace, right? Ordinance may be a commonplace, but there may be certain doctrines, there may be certain beliefs just because you grew up in a different household that did things differently. But now if you assume that you are like everybody else, that's a bad, that's a, that's bad judgment. You need to interact with other believers who are different to get a different perspective so that you can better understand the world around you and the people that God has called you to reach. Amen? We can't stay in one bubble and expect that everyone will change. Here's the biggest deception, guys, and I'll tell you this in a story. How many of you were recently married, like, in the last five or six years? Raise your hand. Five or six years. Okay. Here's one of those deceptions. When you don't hang around people enough, here's what happens. Like, for instance, and I'll use myself as an example. When I was, when I was dating my lovely wife, Tamara, you know, there were certain things that I thought about myself. I thought I was a patient man. You know, you know, I thought my, you know, I, I felt like I had a good grasp on a lot of things. Well, little did I know that I, I hung out with myself so much that I convinced myself that I was doing well. Because when I got married, I realized I don't have that much patience. <laughs> you know, I realized that I thought I was a nice guy. I'm not that nice. Listen, for all of you who are either newly married or thinking about getting married, let me give you a test. This is especially for the men. Men, you want to see if you're married, if you're patient, if you're patient? Let, and this is, I know, I'm not sure, I guess I'm speaking for myself, but I hope, I wonder if this applies to anybody else. But if you think you're patient, let somebody, let your wife or somebody be running you late. And see how you feel. Okay. Yeah, that never happens in our household. But I'm talking about the other people because I want to make sure that they're okay, sweetie. Okay? Um, right? If you think that you're a patient person or you have a whole bunch, like you're, you're very good at what you do, start having little kids. And you'll learn that maybe you're not the most patient person when you're like, just go sit down, just leave me, just sit down, right? You'll realize that you may not have all you need. But guess what? The same thing happens in the household of God when you don't interact with other people. You don't know how to be sanctified because you're not being with other people who can help to sanctify you you got to be around different people so that you can be sanctified. Y'all got that? So, yeah, as cool as it would be to lock yourself in a bubble with Hulu, Netflix, and Hot Pockets, right? <laughs> It'd be good. You can't do that. You have to interact with other people. Genesis 2.18, right? If I'm not, I hope I got this right. It is not good for man to be alone. Yikes. God created us for relationship. Oh, my God, Right? 
So that means you've got to interact with other people. Your life as a Christian can't be lived in a bubble. It must be lived interacting with other people who love and know God, as, as well as people who don't know and love God. Okay? Um, let me keep going here. Relationships are messy, but you were built for relationships. Just like you think others are messy, so are you. So what am I saying? If you're going to fellowship with the saints, you got to realize that you're not God's gift to humanity either. <laughs> you know, like, like, hey, that Reggie guy, he's okay. But I tell you, man, he struggled. I don't know what he believes about baptism, you know. You know, hey, listen, you're, you're, not, a sterling, you're not sterling silver yourself, guys, you know. But you got to realize that as you come, you're imperfect people trying to learn and be more like Jesus. Don't act like everybody, there's something wrong with everybody else. There's something wrong with you too, okay? Just remember that. And I want to give you that because you got to be concerned and fellowshipping with the body of believers. You have to. We're commanded to. Get busy in doing that. You can't stay in the bubble. And just as, a, just as a small addendum, turn to 1 John chapter 5. Hold your finger on Psalm 16. We're going to come back and we're going we're gonna to go through it But now. But I want to add one small point to this idea of fellowship with the saints. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. And of course, I would struggle to find my 1 John right now on my pages. Here we go. Here we go. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says this, 1 John chapter 5, verses um, 1 and 2. Whoever believes in Jesus is, I mean, the, is the Christ, is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born to him. For by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. This idea of loving others. If we, have, if we say we love God, we have to love the children of God. Amen. We cannot we cannot simply say, man, I love God, but man, that, they can have that church. God has called you to be a part of the church. <laughs> you can't divorce one from the other. You have to be a part of the church. Amen. With the takeaway, a question for this. Are you fellowshipping with the saints or avoiding the mess? What if Jesus avoided the mess? Where would you be? If Jesus avoided the mess, that's us, where would we be? We have to be convinced that even though relationships, relationships can get messy, God is still calling us to live with each other in godly love. Amen? Let's, keep, let's go back to, verse, I mean, to Psalms chapter 16. Verse 4, it says this, The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied, and I shall pour out their drink, their drink offerings of blood. Nor will, they, nor will I take their names upon my lips. We've already talked about these two elements, elements of devotion already. First of all, there's dependence in God. Number two, there's fellowship with the saints. And now number three, we must avoid idolatry. We must avoid idolatry. When we read verse 4, we see that the psalmist is actually contrasting the saints of the earth from verse 2 with those who don't believe in, verse, in verses 3. I mean, in verse 3, with, the, with those who don't believe in verse 4. Look what he says about those who don't believe. He says, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. 
the unbelievers, their sorrow will be multiplied. And why? Because they've bartered for another God. And what does it mean to barter? It means to obtain by paying a price. To obtain by paying a price. With that, I have a thought for you. Idols always come with a price. Always. Let me say it again. Idols always come with a price. Always. So no matter whether your idol is money, materialism, your own pride, it always comes with a price. And here's the issue. You're paying a lot more than you think you are. You think you've counted the cost and what it costs for you to have your idol. It's costing you so much more. It may be costing you your family. It may be costing you your status. It may be costing you friends at church. It may be costing you your marriage because you have an idol. And here's the thing. When we see idols, we can't look at them and justify them. We have to burn down the altars where our idols lay. That means if we have something that is keeping us from worshiping God, we need to get rid of it. We need to tear it down. Because if it stays up there, we will worship someone other than God. And God is, and because of the psalm that David has written, it already says that the people who do not believe and have bartered for another God, their sorrows will be multiplied. Don't be in the number of those who are getting their sorrows multiplied. As we keep going in verse four, we see that it says, not only, not only will their sorrows be multiplied, David himself says that he shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood. And this is still in the same vein of, of avoiding idolatry. He says, listen, one of, the, one of the things that were common in a lot of Gentile religions of that day was that they would either drink the blood of an animal or possibly maybe of a human, possibly. Not totally sure about that. As I read, I couldn't come to a quite conclusion if it was human, but definitely animals. And so what David is saying is, hey, I won't bend to the standard of other religions. I won't bend to the standard of what the other cultures practice. I keep, I don't, I don't bend to that. In fact, he says, in fact, what he's saying is he avoids all association with the appearance of idolatry. And because drinking blood was like an appearance of idolatry, he avoided it at all costs. Not only that, it goes on to say in verse four, it says that nor will he take their names upon their lips. You see, now, as we come to this point, we think about this idea that is God saying we shouldn't associate with anybody who is of evil or who is or necessarily who is who does not believe in him? No. What he's saying is this. God doesn't get mad about our interaction with those who don't profess God, but he does have an issue with us being named among one who practices their worship. You see, there's one thing to try to reach somebody to show them who Jesus is. And there's a whole other thing to be hanging with them, thinking that you're evangelizing when in reality they're pulling you in. Um, as a reminder, in fact, we talked about this morning in, in youth group. We talked about um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. It says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so we can't think that we're just going to hang and we're never going to be affected because we're saved and it's never going to happen to us. Listen, even the Bible points out, you hang around long enough, you're going to catch something. <laughs> so you need to make sure you avoid at all costs. You keep your distance. You do what you must do to lead a person to Jesus, but don't compromise your faith. Because notice it said that David said, listen, yeah, I mean, he said, hey, I'm not drinking the blood from the offerings, right? But that doesn't mean that he wasn't trying to reach anybody. It just means that he was making sure that nobody, nobody got it mixed up. You know, like, I mean, I guess you can give you a modern day example. It's just like a Christian who's in, I don't, anybody know of a, a local club around here? 
a local club? Oh, yes, I guess you wouldn't know because you're all in church, right? Got it. There you go. All right. But anyway, it's like a, it's like a, a, a person who's, who's saved and who really believes in Jesus, who's teaching Bible study and doing all these different things, but then he shows up at the club and he's dancing like, ooh, I'm trying to evangelize, baby, right? That's not happening. You're getting caught up. People start associating you with the very thing, right? That's a fine line to walk. And so we have to be careful that as we, that as we are trying to devote our lives to the Lord, that we don't get caught up in idolatry, that we don't associate ourselves with things that would miss, that people would mess, I mean, that would misrepresent us in the kingdom of God. Amen. Let's keep moving in verse five. The Lord is my portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. From verses five and six, after we've seen we have us avoiding idolatry, we see that we are content with God. We are content. So devoted people who find joy in God are content with God only. How do we know that? As we look at verses five and six, we see that those who are devoted to the Lord must know what, I mean, what they're worth. And everything David considered worthy was found in God. It says the Lord is his portion, his inheritance, his cup. Um, when, he says, when he says this, let me kind of give you an alternate version of what this means when he says in, when he says in verse 5. He says, he's basically saying, the Lord is my, the portion of my share. You hold up my share. God holds up the inheritance. God holds up the cup, the inheritance. And not only that, it says that he supports his lot, which means that God guides the boundaries of, of the inheritance. So it's what God has allotted that is considered our inheritance. Nothing more, nothing less. Simply what God has set the boundary for. In verse 6, we see that there's a comparison. There's a comparison here. Um, in verse 5, I mean, in verse, I mean, to verse 5, it says, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful, for, beautiful to me. And here's the thing. When you look at what he's saying, when you look at how David is saying this, you see him using this kind of language like the lines have fallen to me. What that is, is kind of like a real estate term. And what he's referring to is his ideas as if he had gotten a piece of good land. Like imagine you bought this so many acres, right, with a lake on the back and it's, and it's, off, it's out of the city and nobody knows where you can live, right? It's this idea of David saying, man, my inheritance is like a beautiful piece of land. It's drawn out just right. All right. That is what he's saying. He's saying that, listen, my heritage is beautiful. The very thing that God has set set forth for me is a beautiful thing. And God laid out the lines, which means which. And remember, whatever God does is good. So all the things that God has laid out in his inheritance are good things. And God's heritage is beautiful to those who are devoted to him. So when I when I as we talk about this contentment of God, do you, find your, do you find contentment in the things of the world, yourself, or God? A lot of times we get locked up in our, our own worldly inheritance. We get locked up in all the material things of the world, but we should be content in God, knowing that God has an appropriate portion for us. That appropriate portion was given. It died on the cross for us. It gave us the right to eternal life. It's enough, and it's satisfying. We need to be content in the fact that God has given us a satisfactory share and inheritance. We need to be content with that. Only when we find contentment in God can we find contentment in anything else. We have to find contentment in God. 
Let's keep going. In verse 7, it says, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. As we look at this verse, we see that not only has God given us contentment and told us to avoid idolatry, but he's also telling us to seek counsel from himself, God. He says in verse 7, he will bless the Lord who has given him counsel. He's giving God praise in that moment for giving him the counsel throughout his life. And not only that, it says, indeed, when my mind instructs me at night. So even when he's during the hours of sleeplessness, he's thanking God that he has been instructed in his mind to act accordingly. We need to be we need to be people who seek counsel from the Lord, understanding that when we seek counsel from the Lord, it is true counsel that, number one, lines up with who he is. Number two, lines up with his scripture. And number three, other people sometimes can see what's going on. You got that? Listen, if you're the only person who can hear from the Lord and nobody else can see what the Lord is doing in your life, that's a red flag. Y'all follow me? Let me give you an example, a really simple example. Um, and this may be quite funny, but let's, let's do it anyway. Um, so let's say somebody comes up to me and they're like, hey, Brother Reggie, you know what? The Lord told me that, um, I don't say, I'm just going to pick on somebody. Belle is going to be my wife. All right? And, you may, and he may be thinking, man, I'm excited. I'm like, well, you know, there's only one problem with that. She's married. And the scripture said that you can't be with her because she married. Right? Well, then that's not from the Lord. Now, I know that was a very simplistic example, but there are a lot of things that we as people say that the Lord told us that we should be doing. And we do it of our own accord. Right? We have to be convinced that the Lord is working. And if the Lord is working, not only should you see it, everybody should see it. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that everybody in the church is going to be like, yeah, 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 but at least let godly, wise people also see. Because they can affirm what God is doing in your life. Amen? But now if you're the only person and you're mad because nobody else sees it but you, that's a red flag. We have to be sure that the Lord is calling us, that the Lord is doing a work in us, and it has to be affirmed by others. Amen? You about to follow me? Good. All right. And so let's keep on going from seeking, from seeking the counsel of God. Now we're going to get to verse 8. It says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, and I, will not be, and I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my, I mean, and my glory rejoice, rejoices. My flesh also will, be, will dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay, for you will make known to us the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever." Um, just to kind of recap where we've been, and I'm coming close to the very end of this message. Um, number one, we looked at the fact that we have to be dependent upon the Lord. If we are devoted people who follow Jesus and find joy in our devotion, we must follow Jesus. Um, we must depend on the Lord. Next, we fellowship with the saints. We are concerned about the believers around us. We don't leave them high and dry. We're concerned with them. We avoid idolatry, meaning that anything that's not of Jesus, anything that we've bought, paid the price for, that we've bartered with, besides and start understanding and trusting in God, it's an idol and it must be burned down. We find contentment of God knowing that if we're secure and satisfied with the lot that God has given us, there, we don't need anything else because we have enough and God is enough. 
The fifth thing we looked at was this idea that we seek counsel from God. And it's because of God that we have, I mean, it's, we should thank God for the counsel that he gives us because it helps us stay on the right path. And this last thing, which we'll be covering in verses 8 through 11, is we, are, we need to be, when we have all these other things, we are secure in God's will for our lives. As we look, as we look at verse 8, it says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This idea of setting the Lord before you means that as we make decisions with our lives, we're not making them haphazardly. We're putting, we're, we're funneling it through the word of God. We're funneling it through prayer. We're funneling it through the spirit. We're funneling it through ways that God will know that we have his will in mind as we do whatever we do. Is everybody still with me? We have to have the Lord's will in mind as we do what we do. And if we do that, it says that because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, this idea of the right hand, you, usually you hear it in the form of like when Jesus talks about sitting at the right hand of the Father. Well, the idea of the right hand is mentioned lots of times through Scripture, actually. In fact, the right hand refers to, is referred in Scripture as power, this idea of the right hand of power, right hand of safety, the right hand of honor, the right hand of pleasure, the right hand of favor, and the right hand of support. And so this idea in this particular passage is in the context of this scripture, he's talking about safety and security in God. So when he's making these decisions, he's talking about being secure in God. In verse verse 9, he talks about the fact that his heart is glad and his soul rejoices. His body is secure. What this refers to, and here's where we get into the idea of Although it looks like David's simply talking about himself, this is when he gets into the prophetic part. In fact, you can really look at the whole entire set of verses being prophetic. But here's specifically where we get into the idea of where you see this prophetic thought of who the Messiah would be and how he would resurrect from the dead. Because it says, for you, because it says, for you will not abandon my, my soul to Sheol. And when we say Sheol, in this case, it's talking about the grave. God will not abandon his soul to the, will not abandon him to the grave. And then it says, nor will he allow your holy one. And if some of your translation may have holy one in capital letters or holy capital H one capital O, if not in some, in some it is, some it isn't, but it's referring to Jesus, the holy one, the Messiah who was coming. And so it says you will not allow the holy one to go under decay, meaning that God will now allow the body of the Messiah to rot, to decay among the worms and among the ground. But then it also says, but then it also says that you will not, you will make known to me the path of life and your presence is the fullness of joy. God knows he will not leave his soul in Sheol. And the same thing is going for David in a sense. He's saying because he knows the Lord, his soul will not simply rot in the grave and not only that, he won't stay in corruption. Because remember, the hope of the Christian is that one day God will come back, right? We know this is to be is the rapture. And we know that God will one day come back, first of all, for the dead in Christ, those who have proceeded before us, and then those who are alive and remain. And he will come and he will be able to, to take us home. You should be looking forward to that day. But listen, that's not it. The bodies our bodies of sin, our bodies of sickness, our bodies of weakness, our bodies that have led us astray throughout the years of our lives, God is going to take those bodies. He's going to make glorified bodies. He's going to make them brand new. Amen? And so what he's saying is he's also giving them this hope that, listen, even, even if you die, you 
will, you will rise again. Now, prophetically, he's talking about Jesus. I want you all to catch that. He's talking about the fact that, listen, Jesus is not going to stay in the ground. He's going to rise up. He's going to be resurrected. He won't, he won't understand the idea of decay because his body won't be there long enough to know what that's like. But it also means that we have security in God for those who trust in the Lord, for those who've given their life to him, for those who've accepted salvation through Jesus Christ. God has promised us that our, that our lives are secure in him and that we get to experience and inherit heaven. Amen? And this is not something we can lose haphazardly. We can't. God is the one who initiates this contract, and God is the only one who can lose it. And God has already said in John chapter 10 that no one can take you from his hand. So that's security. God has given us security. you got to understand, if you're going to be devoted to God, one of the best things you can know and understand is your identity in God and your identity in Christ. All right? You are a child of the king. You have salvation. It's not because of you. It's because of Jesus. You belong to Jesus. You are his bride. And because you belong to him and you've trusted in him, your soul will will live on. And not only that, it will be eternal life with Jesus and God forever, forever in new heaven, new earth. Amen? We have to trust in that fact. That's going to help us be more devoted when we understand our position and where we are and where God is trying to get us. We have to understand that. And not only that, as we, as we come to the conclusion, and everybody can go ahead and stand. In fact, go ahead and stand. This is going to be a very short point, but it's going to be very important. The last thing we need to have for complete devotion to the Lord is complete confidence in the Lord. It says in verse 11, you will make, make known to me the path of life. In your presence, in God's presence, is the fullness of joy. God will show him the path of life and the path from death back to life again. The path would ultimately lead him back into heaven to God's presence, referring to Jesus. But there would be an experience of the fullness of joy and pleasures forever. Security in God translates to confidence in God. And if we have confidence in him, then we can truly have joy. Do you have joy in the Lord? To have joy, we must discover the path of life. And the question becomes, how do we get to the path of life? First of all, we have to recognize our need for God, which means that we can't depend on ourselves. We put down our idols and we worship the one true God because that helps us avoid idolatry. We find contentment and wisdom in the Lord through his word, through prayer, and through fellowship. When we find our identity in God, then we will realize that we're secure. And once we find that we're secure, we'll realize only then and only then that we have true joy. Our joy is not defined by the house we have, the cars we drive, the knowledge we know. Our joy is defined by the one who gave it all so that we could have a place in heaven. For the one who saw our sin and didn't just shake us and toss us away, he decided to die for our sins. And because he has died for your sins, you can have true joy knowing that your area, your your spot in heaven is secure. You can live knowing that no matter what, 
loosely quoting Romans 8, no matter what happens, life, death, height, nor death, it doesn't matter. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. Will you trust in the Lord to give you joy above all other things? Because only when you trust in the Lord to give you joy can you truly find peace. And with that peace comes devotion, and that devotion leads us to even have even more joy. So trust in the Lord. Be devoted to him in all those ways, and God will make your joy complete. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you, God, for this day. Thank you, God, for this message. God, I pray, God, that you have been working in our hearts and minds, God, that you help us see what it means to truly be joyful. God, that is not contained within ourselves, that is not contained within our prideful measures, that that all of our decisions, God, anything that we have, our material things are all vanity, God, compared to your surpassing joy. And God, we find when we find contentment in you, when we're dependent upon you, God, when we when we avoid adultery, when we do all, I mean, not only adultery, I mean, idolatry, Lord, when we avoid all these different things, God, we will truly understand what it means to have joy in you. And we can understand scriptures like when he says to count it all joy when we go through various trials, God. And when you tell us that we can have in your presence is the fullness of joy, we can understand that, God, because you, because we live to serve you, because we breathe for you, that we serve you and we love only you. And so, God, I pray that if there be anyone in this room, God, who is not experiencing the fullness of joy that you have to offer, God, that they would come, that they would come to the altar, that they would lay their lives before you, God, that they would express a need for you and begin that transformational walk, God, from, from independence without you to dependence on you to security in you. And God, I know, God, that if they come to you and if they, if you call, if they call, God, that you can answer. God, we know that, God, that you've already called out, God, and you're drawing them near, God. All you have to do is answer and seek you, God, and they will find you. If they knock, behold, God, you knock on the door, God. If they would answer, God, you would come in. And so, God, we pray, God, that everyone, God, would seek to find joy in you above all things because you are joy. And your son gave up so much so that we could have a joy that surpasses all things. In Jesus' name, amen.